Hope is founded on God's reputation as the power behind both doom and deliverance. Maybe you've heard the idiom, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Parents who provide for a child's needs and many, if not all, of their wants may feel like their hand has been bitten by a child who responds with ingratitude, who foolishly turns from them to go his or her own way. God asked a similar question of Israel in the song that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32. As a parent might ask a child who has responded with ingratitude, after all I've done for you, why would you treat me like this? This song that Moses wrote reflects upon God asking a very similar question of Israel, who treated God with contempt, with ingratitude, who were arrogant and turned from him the fountain of living water and turned to dig cisterns, cisterns that could not hold water. Jeremiah's description of Israel turning to idolatry. After all I've done for you, Israel, why are you treating me like this? That question is explored by Moses in this song. We'll look at the three aspects of Moses and this song. First of all, God commanded Moses to write this song. Secondly, in chapter 32, Moses composed this song in seven stanzas. And then at the very end, or toward the end of chapter 32, before he died, he encouraged Israel to sing this song as a way of catechizing one another, instructing one another. Before we get into this passage of scripture, most importantly, let us turn to the Lord and ask his blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you that, that you are the rock. You are Yahweh. You are I am. You are the God who is God over all. You are the almighty. And today as we come before you, remind us that you are the power behind judgment and doom as well as grace and deliverance. Father, though much of what we will consider this morning is the bad news of judgment, and yet, yet Father, you have a purpose in causing your people to hit rock bottom. And that purpose is to restore them to a right relationship with you. And so we ask for your blessing. We pray, O oh God, the Holy Spirit, that you will work deeply in our hearts this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now your bulletin indicates that we have a rather large portion of scripture to cover this morning. We will not read most of chapter 31 and all of chapter 32. But I do want to lead us in working through what led up to this song, the song itself, 
and how it might apply to us today. Moses, as we saw last week, as we looked at chapter 39, 9 through 13 in particular, had put the law that he had been preaching throughout Deuteronomy chapter 1 through 30 into writing. He deposited that law with the priest and he instructed them to read the law to all of Israel gathered every seventh year at the Feast of Booths. And then if you look in your Bibles down to chapter 31, verses 24 through 29, we learn more about the law. That the law was to serve as a witness against Israel. In verses 28 through 29, we find Moses establishing a second witness. He called heaven and earth to witness against Israel in light of their future apostasy. And so the law that would be set beside the Ark of the Covenant and would be taken out every seventh year at the Feast of Booths to be read and heaven and earth being called upon to be witnesses, Moses added a third witness and that third witness is this song that God commanded him to write. And so if you would, turn to Deuteronomy 31, 19 through 22. Follow along as I read this portion of Scripture. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, for I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day. What was God's purpose in establishing three witnesses? And the answer to this question is a common theme, especially in the Old Testament, that really ties the Old Testament together in many respects. And the theme is God's covenant lawsuit against wayward Israel. And even the way the Hebrew Bible is organized supports this common thread throughout the Old Testament of God bringing a lawsuit against his wayward people. The Pentateuch, or the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, establishes the record of God making his covenant with Israel and binding them to it. The stipulations, the blessings, and the curses, many of the lessons that we've learned in our study of Deuteronomy. And then we turn to the historical books, such as Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, which in the Hebrew Bible are labeled the former prophets. 
They, the former prophets, are the ones who bring this overwhelming evidence, the history of Israel, that beyond a shadow of a doubt show Israel as covenant breakers. And who would prosecute this covenant? You have the record of the covenant. You have the historical facts that Israel was guilty of violating the covenant. Introduce the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets who compose the prosecutorial team that would serve God in prosecuting his lawsuit against Israel. The structure of Moses' song is rooted in this theme throughout the Old Testament in large measure, this unifying theme of God bringing a lawsuit against his wayward covenant people. However, the song concludes not like a lawsuit. It concludes with a very hopeful twist at the end. First, let's consider the composition, or secondly, let's consider the composition of the song. You know, for various reasons, Derek and I, as we're putting a service together, we may choose to skip over one stanza of a hymn. I prefer not to do that, but sometimes it's just better to not sing the last two stanzas or to skip a stanza. But there are some songs, this is my opinion, you should never skip stanzas. One song in particular is the great Luther song. Hymn number 92 in the Trinity Hymnal, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Each stanza builds upon the other one. It tells a beautiful story of God as our refuge. And to skip one of those stanzas is to leave the story half told. And so we sing the four stanzas of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Moses' song is very similar to that. Seven stanzas, none should be skipped. They build on one another to get to the very last line of the song in verse 43 at the crescendo of this great work of God. After all of the doom and gloom, this great work of God in delivering his people by way of cleansing. So the first stanza, verses 1 through 4, again, as Moses has done previously in chapter 31, verse 8, he summons earth and heaven as universal witnesses to the truthfulness of, of what he will say concerning God's charge against Israel and the truthfulness of what he will say concerning God's justification to cause doom, judgment to fall upon Israel. But this song is not all bad news. If you look at verses 1 through 4, you'll see the reference to rain and dew, watering the tender grass and the herbs. This this life-giving water being provided for the sustenance of plant life. Thus, this song will end with this beautiful picture of God delivering his people, giving them life 
literally bringing them from rock bottom to restoring them to the heights. Ultimately, this psalm is about the greatness of the name of the Lord. Look at verse 4 of chapter 32. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The first stanza. Then the second stanza, the charge, verses 5 through 6, is interesting. The character of God's people is shown in contrast to the character of God in the first stanza. Perfection, justice. And the character of God's people is described in verses 5 through 6 as being corrupt. They are blemished to the point they can barely be recognized as being a part of God's family, his children. Their ways are crooked and twisted, the text tells us. And then in verse 6, that Moses asks two questions. These questions actually accuse Israel of their contempt and gratitude and foolishness with respect to biting the hand that has fed them. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Even though the concept of God being a father is attested in the Old Testament, it's, it's rare. And this is one of those rare occasions for God's fatherhood that, that we've read about really in Luke 15 today is referenced here in this covenant song of covenant lawsuit against Israel. After all I've done for you as a good and loving father, why have you treated me this way? The third stanza, the grounds, the accusation, the charge against Israel is shown to be true based on the grounds, just as a parent may charge a child with being so ungrateful. Look at all I've done for you, why have you treated me this way? The grounds for the charges here is basically God saying the same thing. After all I've done for you, why have you treated me this way? This section, this second stanza or third stanza calls Israel to remember all that God has done. First and foremost, remember that God elected you, Israel. God chose you out of all the other nations that he established, the borders that he established for these nations. He chose you to be his treasured possession, his people. Remember, and we see that in verse 9. If you look at verse 10, remember God's redemptive work in the Exodus, bringing you out of bondage, God's work of caring for his people during the years of wilderness wanderings. He cared for them as, in verse 10, 
They were the apple of his eye, the text says. And then as we look at verse 11, remember how he guided you like an eagle that would seek to teach its young to fly by nudging them out of the nest and then flying under them and catching them on their extended wings. And here Moses used that beautiful imagery of God's guidance and his care to teach and to lead Israel. And then in verses 13 and 14, remember I gave you the bountiful provision of the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. Look at all I have done for you, Israel, the grounds on which this charge is based. And the fourth stanza, verses 15 through 18, is the indictment. This is interesting because this, this section, this stanza begins with a bit of irony, if not sarcasm. Israel is called Jeshurun, which in the Hebrew means upright one. Ironic, isn't it? They, Israel's behavior is exactly opposite of what an upright one's behavior would be. They grew fat, the text tells us, on God's provisions, and they forgot the source, even scoffing, verse 15, at the rock of his salvation. And so the indictment continues in verses 16 through 17. They stirred him to jealousy, that is, the people of Israel stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And then in verse 18, these chilling words, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. One commentator is helpful in saying this, forgetting the Lord consequently leads to idolatry. How many times have we ventured off into idolatry? We might even say, if we are truthful with ourselves, how many times daily do I venture off into trusting something else for life because I have forgotten God and what he has done for me. Verse 18 is chilling. Not only was it chilling for the Israelites as they heard this song recited, maybe even sung for the first time, but it's chilling to us because of how applicable it is. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God that gave you birth. The fifth stanza is the sentence, verses 19 through 25. It's very similar to what we read in the book of Hosea. Those who were my people, God says, are now not my people because of their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. And here the Lord saw his people go headlong into idolatrous worship. And it moved him 
the text says to spurn, to reject Israel as his sons and daughters. Verse 19. He saw them become idolaters and it moved him to hide his face, that is to remove his presence from them in light of their idolatry. And it caused him to view his children as faithless. Verse 20. Israel, in verse 21, provoked God to righteous anger. And the Lord turned the tables by provoking Israel to anger. And the way God will do this is that he will provoke them to unrighteous anger by using another nation as his instrument. A nation that is described in verse 21 as, as not being a people, a nation not God's people, and a nation that is foolish. But God will use him as his instruments to judge Israel. And God's judgment cannot be escaped by anyone. Look at verse 22. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. From the depths of Sheol to the highest mountaintop, the fire of judgment burns. No one can escape it. Israel couldn't escape it. The nations God uses as instruments cannot escape it, and you and me cannot escape it. Everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ in the end. And then God says in verses 23 through 25 that his judgment will look like famine, pestilence, plague, as if wild beasts have run freely and devoured people as the venom of poisonous snakes an awful description of God's judgment against his wayward people. The sixth stanza, however, is a turning point in the song. The, the structure of the covenant lawsuit of which this song is founded stops at this point. And Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes a different trek. He, there's a twist a hopeful twist that is introduced at verse 26. The sixth stanza is about God's reputation. Though Israel should get every ounce of judgment that they rightly deserve, God will be merciful and gracious to them. In the sixth stanza, Moses, Moses writes of God seeking to ensure he gets the credit He's the power behind the sentence of doom. He's the power behind judgment for Israel. And we also learn in this text, he's the power behind judgment. He's also the power behind deliverance. God's reputation as the power behind both doom and deliverance is the foundation of our hope. Look at verses 26 through 27. The song tells us that, that God would have wiped away 
his people from the face of the earth, but for the enemy boasting. Our hand is triumphant, the enemy might say. It was not the Lord who did all this. In other words, the enemy that God used to judge Israel are described as lacking sense and discernment and not able to overthrow any nation unless God delivered his people over to them. These nations that God uses as instruments cannot compare. They are little R rocks, and they cannot compare to the capital R rock, the God of Israel, verse 31. The gods of the enemy are rooted in evil, and their wine is poisonous. And God is so powerful and God is so sovereign that he actually stores up this poisonous wine to use at his appointed time, the appointed time of his vengeance. Look at verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And what this stanza is showing us is God's concern for his reputation. I am in control of using a foolish nation to judge my people. I am the power behind that judgment. And the seventh stanza, God's deliverance, also shows his interest, his interest in his reputation of being the power behind Israel's deliverance. Look at verses, verse, uh, chapter 32, verses 36 through 38. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his sermons, servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. Maybe you remember Elijah standing before the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, challenging the prophets of, of Baal to call upon their false god to rain down fire on the sacrifice. And Elijah actually taunts them of course, all day they tried to get Baal to rain down fire on the sacrifice, and he, he didn't because he couldn't because Baal was nothing. He was impotent. And we see the same type of thing in this seventh stanza. Moses challenges, in effect, Israel to call upon their gods in whom they've been trusting. They've turned from the rock, capital R, to these little rocks that are nothing, that are impotent. All right, Israel, call upon them for help. God took Israel sovereignly to rock bottom and challenges them. You've been trusting in these idols? Now's a good time for you to get help from them. And of course, they couldn't because these little G gods, these little rocks, little R rocks are nothing impotent. 
and Israel at rock bottom suffering this doom, everything has been stripped from them, all of a sudden come to the realization of their folly in trusting in false gods to give them life. You remember the story of the prodigal son that Kevin read earlier. The son demanded his inheritance from his dad. I'm sure the father felt like his hand was bit by his son. He had given everything to his son. And now his son shows contempt for his father. Dad, I want my inheritance I, as if he were dead. In gratitude, foolishness, forgetting all that his father had done for him. So his father said, okay, here's your inheritance. The son took it, went off, and lived life as he wanted to live life free from his dad. Reckless living, the text says, or prodigal living. And what was the result? The son hit rock bottom. He was feeding pigs, desiring to eat what the pigs would not eat. That's a good description of rock bottom. And he came to his senses. He realized his ingratitude, his contempt for his father. He realized his sin, his foolishness. And he endeavored to go home, wishing only to be restored to the position of servant. After all, the servants in his father's household had so much more that he had at rock bottom. But there's a question I want us to consider here. It's an important question, not only in understanding the parable of the prodigal son, but in understanding this song. And the question is this, how could he return? How could a son who had been so contemptuous, who had sinned against his father to such a great degree, even, I want my inheritance as if he were dead, how could he ever return? God, the power behind doom, will cause his people to hit rock bottom so they too will come to their senses and decide to return to God. But how can they return? They deserve to suffer the sentence of the covenant lawsuit. And we deserve to suffer the sentence of the covenant lawsuit. Let me ask you a question. Have you hit rock bottom? Maybe there's a sense in which every day we hit rock bottom. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you are just living free from the stipulations that God would place upon his people. But at some point, you may experience what it means to hit rock bottom. Maybe you are someone who has trusted in the Lord, but you've strayed. And you've come to a place of hitting rock bottom. 
only to realize just how foolish you are. In other words, there's a, there's a point in time where most of us come to the place of coming to our senses and realizing that we bit the hand of our Father, that we, we have ingratitude, that we've treated God with contempt. We've presumed upon His grace. And that which we have turned, we turn from God to various things, idols, that we trust to give us life. It could be a religion, but it could be money. It could be our family is an idol. Anything can become an idol. Anything that we turn from God to embrace for life is an idol. And what God is showing us here in this psalm, what we learn in the parable of the prodigal son is that there is a point where God, the power behind doom, brings us to the place of rock bottom so that we come to our senses and we return to him. And this really is our hope, that God is both the power behind doom causing this rock bottom experience as well as being the, the power behind deliverance. And I want to bring us to the concluding verses of the song. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, we'll also read verse 41 and also verse 43. As we consider this seventh stanza of God's deliverance. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Verse 41. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. Then verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So I want to reflect upon these three verses as Moses brings this seventh stanza and the song itself to conclusion. I am he, says the Lord in verse 39, reminiscent of the covenant name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. I am the only God, the true God. Verses 41 and 43 depicts God as the divine warrior who unsheathes his sword to take vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his people, to repay those who hate him and who hate his people. And after many, many stanzas of doom and gloom, the song ends in verse 43 with rejoicing and triumph. Rejoicing and triumph for God's people. 
Why? Why is there rejoicing finally at the end of this song? Yahweh, the one true God who is over all, who avenges the blood of his children, who repays those who hate him, is the one who makes a way for his children to come home from being at rock bottom. And the way that God makes for his children to return, his children who have so grievously disappointed him, who have so violated his covenant, sinned against him, been contemptuous against him, expressed ingratitude towards him, maybe even at points hating him by turning from him and turning to worshiping little r rocks, little g gods. He makes a way. And that way is he acts. He acts to cleanse. The text says to cleanse his people's land. That's why there is rejoicing and triumph. The last phrase of the last verse, we could say the last line of this hymn, is the great climax, the, the center of the movement of this hymn, though it comes at the end. As Israel is at rock bottom, they learn, struggling with the question, how can I return after violating the covenant so grievously? God says, I will act. Why did the prodigal son actually return? He was depending, his hope was in his father acting. He was hoping just to be allowed to serve as a servant. But notice the action of the father in the prodigal son. The father is looking for the son to return. When he sees the son to return, the father takes the initiative. He runs to the son, embraces him, kisses him, calls the servant to bring the robe, the ring, the sandals, throw a party, completely restored. The point is, the son returned. He was depending on the father acting to receive him. To forgive all of that sinning and to wipe it off the slate. And that's exactly what Jesus is communicating in this parable. The forgiveness and compassion of God to take us back. And here in this song, we learn that the action of God, it really is the same Meaning of the prodigal son, in my judgment, is the Hebrew word translated cleanse, kipper, which in the Hebrew means to cover, and sometimes it's translated to atone. The, the covering that Moses is talking about here probably points to the fact that Israel has been committing idolatry in the land of Canaan. Think of all those animals they sacrificed to those false deities, 
all of that pagan ritual they went through in, in worshiping the deities of the Canaanites, all that false worship and the blood of those false sacrifices soaking the ground, polluting the ground with idolatry. And God says, I'm going to wipe it clean. I'm going to cover it as if it never happened. And I think the implication is, is God's not only going to cleanse the land of every vestige of Israel's false worship and sin and idolatry, but he's going to cleanse the people. That's the offer of atonement for the people. In fact, the sacrificial system points to this very profoundly. God will atone for the pollution of idolatry from the land and the people. God will act to make a way for the people to come from being at rock bottom where they realize how grievously they have violated the covenant how contemptuously they have treated God, how much and great they have sinned, God is saying, I will act. I'm the power behind deliverance, and I will make a way for you to come and be restored from under judgment as my people. This, this song of Moses ends like the prodigal son in many respects, God acts to receive us, to receive us back like the father and the prodigal son and to throw a party for a sinner to come home. God's case against Israel is ironclad. It is a slam dunk. If any lawyer had this case, he wouldn't even have to study for it. I mean, it's just obvious that Israel is guilty. God won the lawsuit hands down. No question about it. Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth. That should be the outcome of this lawsuit. But God doesn't work that way. God covered Israel's guilt. That's what he's communicating in this last line of the last stanza of this hymn. He was able to cover their guilt because he not only did that, but he took the punishment for violating the covenant. The justice that the song starts out crediting to God in verse 4 ends with God necessarily having to satisfy his justice and we know he satisfied his justice ultimately through Jesus on the cross where Jesus was the sacrifice he shed his blood to cover our guilt to expiate it to remove it to expunge it but he also suffered the wrath of God the penalty of covenant breaking in our behalf so that we would never face it. I believe in this last line of the last stanza of this hymn, we find a very powerful echo of Jesus and his cross, the atonement through the atoning work of Jesus Christ.
Christ. And my question for us today, maybe you're, you haven't reached rock bottom. Maybe you're still trying to gain life from idols, from things, money, family, reputation, job, maybe a religion that is really nothing that is impotent. And God's grace would say it would be a good thing for the power behind doom to cause you to hit rock bottom. It was a good thing when the power behind doom caused me to hit rock bottom. So that I would see that that which I was trusting was nothing and impotent. It's a good thing when the power behind the doom brings about the rock bottom in a person's life. Because at rock bottom is when we come to our senses by God's grace to see that he is the rock that truly is our refuge, the rock that truly is our deliverer, the rock that has covered our guilt from our covenant breaking and has satisfied his own justice so that we can return and be restored and a celebration and a party take place. Moses ends, and I'm really struck by this ending as, as the song has come to an end in verses 32 through 46 and 47. Moses says, take to heart all the words of which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that you may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word but your very life, and by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Think of it like this. Moses wrote the law down, gave it to the priest, every seven years, pulled the law out, read it to all of Israel as a witness. And yet God in his infinite wisdom gave us a witness that we can memorize, a witness that is really a song in our heart that we can sing, that a, a witness that should be a part of the, the normal course of everyday living, a, a witness that warns us of the consequences, the severe consequences of disobedience and moves us to obey. And a song that so beautifully causes us to rejoice because of this deliverance, this song. Really, this song of Moses, we could categorize it as a gospel song. The power behind doom is the very same power behind deliverance. The power that brings us to rock bottom is the power that uses that rock bottom as part of his way of delivering us to bringing us home. It's a beautiful gospel song. And may this gospel song, may, may this song 
of God being the power behind doom, judgment, and the power behind grace, deliverance, resonate in our hearts, warning us about idolatry, encouraging us to obey, and reminding us of God's deliverance. Dear brother, dear sister, would you turn to the rock that is the power behind both doom and deliverance? Let us pray. God, we do commit ourselves to you, thanking you for your power, acknowledging our need of you to act, that we would be able to live before you as your children. As we have sung already this morning, it is not what my hands have done, it's what you have done and are doing. It is not about my being able to navigate the rock-bottom episodes of my life. It is about you using the rock-bottom that I would come to my senses and turn again to you and you actually acting to receive me and restore me and deliver me. Father, I pray that you would cause this song that we've reflected upon this morning to be the melody in each of our hearts. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.